Why not become a My Perfect Console Patreon supporter? For just $5 a month, you will get your episodes early and ad-free. You'll get access to the members-only My Perfect Console Community Lounge. You'll receive guest announcements exclusively before the general public. You can pitch questions to future guests, download bonus episodes in which guests answer those questions, and vote in the annual My Perfect Console Best Console of the Year knockout competition coming later in 2023. Hop along to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and become a supporter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an English comedian, actor and one of the most prolific joke writers in the UK. He first made a room laugh as a young child at his aunt's wedding, when during the ceremonial speeches, the other guests overheard him speaking to his mother. Then, while a student at the University of Sheffield, he again became an accidental stand-up, when, at the last minute, he filled in for the compare at a comedy event. 
Since then, he's delighted audiences with his rapid-fire joke-telling, both at the Edinburgh Festival, where he has been nominated for the Best Show Comedy Award, and on television. As a regular panellist on BBC's Mock the Week, ITV's The Stand-Up Sketch Show, and most recently, the new US series The Great American Joke-Off. My guest is also a presenter on BBC's video games TV show and podcast, Press X to Continue, for which he has completed more than 100 games every year since 2020. Welcome, Glenn Moore. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. I really appreciate it. Ah, that's, that's super kind. Yeah, I had, to, I had Phil Wang on the, uh, on the show a few weeks ago, and at the end of our conversation, I asked him, who should I get on here? And uh, without hesitating, he immediately uh, brought your name up. So oh, I'm nice. super glad we could uh, make it work. Phil and I were involved in a charity wrestling uh, event for Comic Relief a couple of months ago, and he, I think he, he arrived there from having just done this podcast and was like, you've got to do this podcast. You've got to listen to this podcast. And since then, I've listened to every single episode, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be here, so thank you. Ah, that is, that's really nice of you. Well, uh, without the way, I'm going to actually make you jump off the deep end a bit. Uh, I wonder if we could return to that scene of your uh, childhood trauma yeah, thank- at your aunt's wedding. Thank um, you so much. Can you, can you, do you remember what happened, and can you tell us a story? Oh, I don't know where you stumbled across that. Yeah, I remember it vividly. It was uh, I was a very shy child, and I was five years old, and I was a page boy at my aunt and uncle's wedding in Scotland. Were, and uh, were you wearing a kilt? I was wearing a kilt, sporran, long, itchy socks. I remember it horribly. Uh, blue pants, don't know why I remember that. I just remember all of it. I remember all of it and i think my parents were worried i was going to be restless and bored throughout the wedding and my dad gave me this little tiny toy car that was sort of like a little it was it was sort of like a regular car but then if you if you press down on it it became like a convertible and it, it sort of fit perfectly in my sporran and uh, that sort of kept me occupied for most of the dinner and during the dinner which was in this huge square of maybe about 150 200 guests it was a really really big wedding i was a bit bored and my mom was letting me play with one of us sort of hoop bracelets and i was flicking this toy car and i flicked it and it went through the hoop and i said to my mom in what i thought was a really hushed whisper but it came out incredibly loudly i just said my car just went through the hoop and it disrupted the father of the bride speech and it wasn't a, in any way a funny thing to say i was just saying what i saw and i was really excited mm-hmm. but that it it disrupted the speech and the entire room erupted in like almost angry, aggressive laughter is the way I've sort of remembered it. And I remember just burying my face in my mum's oh, oh, just so mortified and humiliated. And um, it was weird. I remember talking to my stand-up director and separately to my girlfriend about it. On both both times I, I, I mentioned that instance, they were both like, oh, that's why you do comedy. Right. That's 100% <laughs> psychologically why you do comedy is to make sure that you know it, it laughter is only ever going to hopefully be done on your terms right 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 it's obviously it's obviously played some huge psychological effect on yeah. you yeah and and has dictated the weight of your life and i was like yeah probably yeah probably because i just I, I remember feeling so deeply embarrassed it's, it's such an interesting origin story because um i've had a had a few comedians on this show and uh, almost all of them describe the first time they stood in front of a crowd and got a big laugh and how Essentially, it sort of set their brain on fire, and then yeah. the rest of their career has been spent trying to chase that high, as it were. Yeah, but uh, for, for you, it's sort of the the opposite way around, right? You, oh yeah, you had this experience, was... and then you've been almost trying to run away from it ever since, or, or control it, or something. Yeah, it's it's Bruce Wayne dressing up as a bat, isn't it? It's me. Like, it's the only way I could sort of confront it. Um, uh, I think that's probably why. I, did. I mean, I did enjoy trying to make people laugh, and had enjoyed that sort of throughout my my whole life as uh, as as something to attempt. 
But that was uh, that. Yeah, that was just a really early iteration of. Oh, this isn't fun laughter. This is. I feel really put on the spot. I feel very right. exposed. I but think. people don't. People don't laugh angrily, Glenn. They weren't doing that. I know exactly. <laughs> it was very. It felt like a like a really angry mad king. But right. hundreds of them. You know, it was a real like. <laughs> Look at the buffoon. Um, it was uh, in my head. That's how I remembered it. When in fact it was just a good natured interruption. Yeah, sure. Of yeah. of a profoundly weird father of the bride speech. Yeah. yeah. Have you been able to forgive five-year-old Glenn for that interruption? Uh, I mean, stand-up is now, you know, very much my full-time career, so evidently not. Um, so it's fine. <laughs> it's fine, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with it being the origin of it, you know. For most people, it is yeah, literally yeah. just they, they watched stand-up and they thought, oh, I'd like to give that a go. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for me, it was vastly different to that. Yeah, yeah. So you you are a sort of classic joke writer. And, uh, you know, while your, your work, like, has a super contemporary feel, I think, but also... You know, probably that that format is a bit less pre- prevalent in comedy today, and you know, lots of the really high-profile comedians are a bit more confessional and anecdote-based and all of that stuff. Um, why do you think you pre- preferred that sort of pitter-patter um, joke writing approach historically, at least? I think it felt more creative, and I had a very, very just regular, dull upbringing, and so was worried that when I first was interested in the idea of doing stand-up, potentially that, well, if you're meant to talk about your life, I'm never going to be able to make anything of myself because I've got, it, there's not, there's no, there's nothing exciting that's happened. There's nothing different, but, uh, that's really worth, what worth talking about. And similarly, I think I just enjoyed the creative aspect of someone's imagination, uh, of, 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 of just coming up with, uh, you know, a sort of, it was, it was always ideas that interested me more than the idea of a sort of someone telling a funny story that, that happened to them. Um, so that, that was mm. entirely what, 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 uh, drove it. And then, and then I think the, when it came to writing my first ever stand up show, I had a director at the time who was obsessed with confessional storytelling and was like, you need your debut show to be your story so far, your biography. And I, I was completely at loggerheads with that. So I basically wrote a fictionalized biography of myself. And the show was basically just a collection of one liners, but all fit this sort of cohesive format and then that it was purely by that sort of mistake purely us having a disagreement that, that then fully informed my stand-up so my stand-up style now is sort of faux confessional but it's all fictionalized stories from my childhood and life right, right. because i just sort of thought I, I, yeah. yeah why not make it up and there's no pretense that it's true no one in the audience fully believes it's true there's always a few aspects that are real and i always try to make sure that those are the least plausible realness you know the, 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 the bits that were real were the bits that you were you'd be absolutely certain were not <laughs> but i just sort of thought oh that's that 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 was different and i you know as i, as I said I, I enjoyed seeing joke tellers and old st- not old style jokes but just really sort of brief punchy one-linery sort of jokes i enjoyed that style and i started doing it yeah. because i didn't really see a lot of it around and so i just kind of thought well why don't i just try and do it myself, I guess. This is a this is an extremely basic question <laughs> that uh, is a bit embarrassing to What's ask your name? for a professional journalist. But uh, <laughs> no, but I'm genuinely interested in like how you go about writing a one liner joke because it seems like such a technical little thing. Like doing an anecdote or a story, I, I understand mm. that world like really well. But but it, the technicality of a little joke, it's like. It's like making a watch or something. It just seems really alien to me. How do you how do you do that? Basically, you you have to start with a punchline first and work backwards. I think that's why it seems it seems like a sort of uh, strange sort of art, art form and, and and an impenetrable one because everyone you hear a joke forwards, but the reality is obviously you've got to write it backwards and you sort of work backwards from there. And usually the way, the way I'd write a joke is just taking a, 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 a sort of a normal thing in one particular context. I'm putting it into a stranger context. So I, I, I'm trying to always think of an example. I, I used to have this joke 
years ago that was about how this um girl was like flirting with me at a bar and she was eating from this bowl of cherries and she did something called the cherry stem trick where you put a cherry stem in your mouth and you tie it into a knot with your tongue and then she took things one step further she put a whole kinder egg in her mouth pulled out a fully assembled toy and it was like well that was the it it, 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 it was just a case of well that's the i thought of the idea of people doing the cherry stem thing and then thought well, what's a mm-hmm. silly what's a silly aversion of that that's someone yeah, did. Yeah, and it's yeah. quite uh, in many ways making it sound quite lazy and it probably is uh, but it's, it's just taking something from one context and putting it into another yeah no it's not lazy at all and also you've got kinder kinder eggs are associated with um you know they're, they're not sexy are they so as well exactly there's that there's that element as well but it was a, it was a it was a silly thing and uh, i think i told that joke on the the aforementioned great american joke off and forgot that they're banned oh, really? in the u.s so um the rest of the U.S. panelists looked very confused. <laughs> so, you know, for for people who work in creative fields, like often you find moments of inspiration while you're out for a walk or something like that, or doing like sometimes a repetitive task like playing a video game. Do you ever do you ever find inspiration hits while you're playing games? No, I think there was um, I, weirdly structure. It was more structurally that I'd get inspired. So, um, it, basically through Soulsborne games, the structure of those informed uh, how I wrote callbacks uh i'm i'm, I'm obsessed oh, with callbacks. Nice. i'm obsessed with structuring a show i think over the course of an hour long show uh or longer like a long sort of tour show that you, you can just do a, a couple of hours of disparate material but i always thought it's so much more satisfying if it all links together if everything is relevant to another bit um and then by the end it's quite fun to write a, a, a bespoke closing routine that ties all of those sort of aspects together yeah. and so i always found it i didn't really enjoy callbacks in people's comedy when i was growing up because usually i just saw it as the repetition of a joke from earlier and you're just repeating the same thing and it just seemed like a sort of lazy out i guess but actually i thought well, if you recontextualize it um and make sure it's you know every every word in the callback is different to the original joke and it's in a different mm. context then it's suddenly more satisfying and it feels like everything's more organically tied together in the same way that right. a satisfying punchline doesn't really share many of the key words from the setup because you don't you don't really want to repeat any of those words um mm-hmm. so i found through oh the first time i think i ever opened uh a, a, like a a shortcut in bloodborne or dark souls and found oh my god i'm back in this area this, this yeah. is the area from four hours previously and <laughs> On the other side of this wall, it looked completely different. And I cannot believe it's all links to that same area. That suddenly made me sort of think differently about how I could... Because you, you sort of think, well, yeah, but, it, it cre- you know, that, 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 that's creative, how From Software have done that. And creativity yes, has different yeah, yeah. forms in other things. You know, a song can have a callback, a song, you know. And and so um, it, that kind of informed how I tried to recontextualize jokes and later on and every time i ever write a joke that's going in a full-length show of mine i always make sure can it reappear later on in the show in a fully different context not in a right, yeah, right. Um, not in a disingenuous sort of just for the sake of it sort of way but you can have value if, if sort of put sort of later on yeah that's so lovely yeah because i suppose you do you know in a from from soft game you feel a sense of like a wonder and appreciation of the the thoughtful design that's behind it and that's, yeah. that can be true in callbacks and you know not only in, in comedy but also in in books as well and things in films you know? yeah gives you a, you know it just gives you a sense of oh there's a craftsperson behind this which is really nice yeah so, exactly but, but i kind of wanted because i know that stand-ups meant to technically meant to feel like this organic this person's just walked on stage and they're just riffing they're riffing for an hour and seeing what comes about <laughs> but where i sort of always wanted to sort of present myself was no i've spent a year i've spent a year writing this i, I want i want you to know 
I've put a lot of effort into this and there's no, there, there's no, uh, there's no pretending that this isn't scripted to the hilt. This is, this yeah, is yeah. a soliloquy. This is fully a monologue that, sure, something interesting happens in the room, I'm going to break out of it and mix stuff up and change the structure of a show sort of each night. But ultimately I'm like, no, I, I wrote these jokes and I care about them and I, I want you to know this is a fully, like, it's also my way of sort of going, please concentrate. <laughs> please, please concentrate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that Stuart Lee's got a couple of books out, hasn't he, where he, it's sort of a transcript of the show, but then he also has footnotes and it sort of it reads, like you say, like it's a, something that he's coming up with on the spot. But then in the in the footnotes, he's got very detailed, like, oh, at the beginning of the tour, I tried it like this. Yeah, and then yeah, I yeah. Did this. No, absolutely. So, so, yeah, you get a real sense of the, the, the work that's gone mm. into it. Okay, Glenn. So I ha- the the format of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you're going to put on your fictional games machine. Can you just tell me, you, you emailed me your set of games and you said that you'd come up with a very specific set of criteria for, for judging these. Do you want to explain what you meant by yeah, that? Yeah, I think so. I, firstly, as, I, as I've said, I've, I've, I've gushed about this already, but I, I love the podcast and I, I, was, I was immediately trying to sort of think well, you know, do do I what? How how do I choose these five games? And is it simply my favourite five of all time? Is it an odyssey through my life's gaming journey in which I pick one from the nineties, one from the nineties, one from the tens, etc., etc.? Um, and actually, then I started to think. Well, I I I quite like hearing about certain things people look out for in games and certain sensations or experiences and stuff like that. So yes. I tried to think of five sort of tropes or sensations or emotions that i love to get from games or settings or anything like that and then try nice. and as a result choose the what i see as the epitome of those for, for me um so as a result these are all quite recent games because they are the epitome i think the earliest is probably 2014 um right and uh, but at the same time i've tried because i there was part of me that didn't really want to be sort of affected too heavily by nostalgia bias only because I've Better. recently started replaying some of my favorite games from my childhood, and they've just been shit. They've really, <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, well, I don't want to, I don't want to money in those waters. At the same time, it's so you know, there's there's no there's no Hogs of War or Soul Reaver or Roller Coaster Tycoon, and at the same time, I didn't really want to be affected too much by uh, recency bias. So there's nothing from the past yet, even though that if you ask me this in ten years, Elden Ring or Pentiment or uh, Case of a Golden Idol would probably be on there. But I just wanted yeah. to sort of force myself not to. So um, these experiences that we will talk about are vastly different. So the first one, uh, this one is about the concept of home, and it is Dark Souls 2. So Dark Souls 2 is often the one that uh, fans of the Dark Souls series sort of say they don't like as much. So t- tell me why why you are bucking that trend. I love all of them. At the moment of recording, I find it bizarre that only one from Software Game has appeared in my perfect console <laughs> so far. And that was an episode that came out yesterday. So I, it, is, it has baffled me that none, none have appeared so far. And I think there are people who would be able to talk 
who have greater experience over the last decade or so and have far greater knowledge and experience to be able to talk about a, 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 a much loved one like Dark Souls more eloquently than I can. I am certain no one else will say Dark Souls 2, but I have quite a, a checkered past with with uh, from software games. The, fir- the first encounter I ever had with them was actually kind of as early as, as could have been. My best friend from school, we, we keep in touch a lot when we're at uni, and he was a, a real games aficionado and went on to write on No Man's Sky and Divinity Original Sin 2 and stuff like that. And was always just very, very up, up to date with what games to play. And I remember visiting him once in the summer holidays. And he was like, I've got two new games for the PS3. You need to try these. And the first one was Demon's Souls. And it oh, was, wow. it was, a, it was, a, it was, it wasn't in English. It was, it was just completely new to me. And I hate, I hated it <laughs> so much. It made me so angry. And I remember it so vividly, but it was Bulletary. It was the first, it was 1-1, one, one, that first sort of level. And I found it infuriating that you, the, the first few enemies of these weak, impoverished skeletons, yet it was taking me several sword hits to do anything. I mean, after three sword hits, I couldn't do anything more. My friend would be like, yeah, you've run out of stamina. And it was like, well, what do I do? And he was like, roll away. And it was like, well, I can't because I've run out of stamina. And now they're hitting me. And I can't block because I'm going to be stamina. Mm-hmm. And I just kept dying and dying and dying. And I just went, I'm, I, why can't you level up? Why can't you save? And it was so infuriating. It made me so angry. Yeah. And um, then the other game, he was like, well, let's try this other game. It's Bioshock. And we played Bioshock and I loved it and immediately fell in love with that. And that, and so I didn't then think about From Software Games for years and then actually started to get angry each time I heard about a new Dark Souls game coming out because I was like, why are people drinking this Kool-Aid? It's crap. They, they, the games look bleak and ugly and they're, they're hard, it seems, for the sake of it. And then in, in lockdown, I, I forced myself to play. I bought Dark Souls for the Switch and played it on just the fully handheld Switch, never plugged it into the TV at any point. And I'm always obsessed with the sort of the click, the moment that it just mm. hits you of what what works with these games. I think for me, it's probably unlocking a shortcut in, in Dark Souls. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly I just really got into it. And then from there, then did Dark Souls 3, then Bloodborne and Sekiro. And then because I'd heard Dark Souls 2 wasn't, wasn't really the best in the series, it just sort of left it behind and, me, and then, and then, and then tried it. And I, I, I just, you know, I'd, I'd fallen in love with all of them by this point. And I saw Dark Souls 2 as no different. Now, this is the scholar of the first sin edition. So it's a lot, you know, they, they, by this point, it tidied up some of the stuff that people didn't like. Yeah. But a lot of the issues people have with, with Dark Souls 2 weren't really the sort of things I was interested in with Dark Souls anyway. And I've never really fully engaged with the storyline because uh, the, the way I sort of see it was I, I quite enjoy the idea of being this foreigner in a strange land where you're picking up snippets and yep. because that's kind of how Miyazaki had sort of right, seen right. it initially in the first place. And 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 I'd listen to so many podcasts and read so much lore about Dark Souls and the fact that people still haven't reached a consensus on what it's fully about makes me think. Well, okay, fine. I won't. It's not that it's not meant to be. Yeah. It's not meant to be fully understood. So I was happy just just having a vague understanding and sort of going through. And um, I what really I, I loved about it was was for me Dark Souls Two was the first time I approached one of those games with confidence, and I went in and I really felt in charge and and on top of it. And it is re- it's probably for me is the most challenging of of the trio. But my attitude had completely changed to it, and I quite enjoyed how that had sort of progressed. The the first. Um, Dark Souls I played basically as a it is true survival horror and I, I I was treating the game as if there was a wasp in the room and I was just I had my shield shield up at all points treading so carefully and every time an enemy even took a swim at me it was like oh god okay and and I was so lazy in the first game that I would 
I would hang around. If I saw a fog gate, I would hang around until I saw a summon sign. I wouldn't even try yeah, right. yeah. on my own. I wouldn't even try. And then I'd let them, I'd let the two summons deal with it on the road. I was pathetic. And um, <laughs> and then Dark Souls 2 was the first time I just thought, no, let, let's fully do this. In terms of the, the concept of a home and how that sort of ties yeah. in, I, I, I love the idea of having a, a, a hub, a, a central hub that you sort of have to return to. It was something that I wish that the more recent GTAs kept up. I love the fact that in San Andreas or Vice City, when you finished a mission, you still then have to go home to save. And it was like walking. It reminded me of any time I've ever done a gig in a dodgy area and I've been paid in cash and I'm walking through the dodgy area with cash in my wallet and I'm really nervous. And that's kind of what it felt like. And <laughs> it, it, in, in, in San Andreas, it helped me learn the layout of the city. Yeah. Yeah. That each time you drove back home, eventually earlier and earlier you'd go oh right if i take this right then this left i'm now on grove street now i know i'm I'm back home and so i enjoyed in dark souls 2 i know the map isn't as intricate as as the original dark souls but it it does spiral off in four different directions and i quite enjoyed reaching the end point of one of those directions defeating the final boss there and then sort of hotline miamiing my way all the way back through the map i'd just been in because that's kind of how you see more of the secrets and, and stuff like that and then hearing the familiar music of of Majula, the um the hub area, which is my favourite hub area of all of all the Souls games, and uh, and that actually there was a real coziness to to it, but I loved it, an otherwise very bleak game, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was it it really felt like a home territory, especially because one thing I do enjoy about the Souls games is the sort of the acquisition of NPCs throughout. You meet people and they end up back at your hub area, and in Dark Souls two, you're just collecting more and more of yeah, them. Yeah. And so in those moments of real bleakness, it, it, that, that the idea of I will eventually be in Majula, I will eventually be home would always really sort of brighten it for me. And I, 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 I like how dark and bleak those games can get. I love that in Dark Souls 2, in that hub area, you've got this menacing open pit in the middle and you can't even really get down there quite easily until you either, you know, use spells or you meet ladder smith gilligan i think his name was the guy who sells ladders which is not a uh not an easy career but um uh but it, i i i just loved I, I love any moment in those games where you just go you just plummet below the earth you just get lower and lower and i really enjoyed you know the first level down that pit is the the sewers full of rats and it's still man-made it's still you know it's still deliberate and then below that you end up in what is essentially blight town again and then you go down even further into an area called Black Gulch, which is just so, so low underground. You're so far away from the nearest natural light source. And then at the very lowest point, you open up these double doors and there's this elderly man sat in the chair and you just sort of think, who's, who's this sort of dark master guy. And it's just, it, it, it was just so lonely and bleak. Yeah. And to then defeat the boss in that area and then you end up back in that home territory, it felt like sort of coming up for air from underneath the duvet i just really really enjoyed that for a, a series that i couldn't have hated more i couldn't have hated more i used to sort of almost hate read <laughs> forums about it it just baffled about how people were sort of proudly saying no 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 like uh, like dark souls isn't here to impress you you're here to impress dark souls and it was like who the fuck does this game <laughs> yeah think it is and you, I, it just baffled me and then suddenly to really it that, is annoying if you're not part of the club yeah and, and, it, and can, it is a bit annoying but that yeah. whole get good atmosphere i just didn't like and actually i've never since playing those games i've never encountered it it's one of the most supportive communities you could ever find but the the, the the feeling of bringing people into your own world and them helping you out of boss fights and stuff it's such a fun peer-to-peer experience that i've never really experienced anywhere else. i just love it so much and everything just felt so iconic from the new location sound from everywhere you go to the to the enemy defeated sort of yeah different tagline that you get in each of the game and then finally the most recent one i bought actually but when i when i got a ps5 the first game i got for ps5 
was Demon Souls and to be able to finally sort of yeah returned with all your new skills yeah because at the time I was um the only other person I knew who had a PS5 was was Dara Brina. I remember talking to him during a, a tech rehearsal for Mock the Week and he was saying he just started Demon Souls and he was like you can't save how do you save and I was like oh, look, I was in this situation twelve years ago trust me just keep playing please keep playing and I really hope he has I really hope he has <laughs> that's brilliant I love one other thing I like about Dark Souls Two is is a story that um I think Miyazaki who is the architect of the series was working on Bloodborne at the time. So he gave Dark Souls 2, like the world design, which he'd always typically done himself. He gave it to his some of his genius to allow them to cut their teeth. And yeah. so it's just a really lovely external story, obviously from the game itself, but about, you know, that sense of relinquishing a bit of control and letting other people sort of, you know, have practice. And It's a it's such a lovely side yeah. to it. And I, I'm aware it's not the best one I, I, I even i probably truly don't believe it is i think dark souls is the better location three is the best bosses Bloodborne's probably got the best combat but it was just it was something yeah. really special and it was you know i i, I it was I, i'm so obsessed with with miyazaki as a, as a as a figure and every interview i've ever read and i've read so much sort of around it and there's an excellent book called you died which is this companion piece to it and i i i, I just i love even just talking about the lo- different locations and the bosses just everything about it is just so brilliant and I'm now, uh, I'm now I'm constantly preaching and boring people, <laughs> convincing them to give it a go. Right, let's get back to your story then, Glenn. So you, when you were a kid, uh, did, did you want to be a performer? Yeah, definitely. Right? I definitely wanted to go into acting to some extent. And I think my parents mm-hmm. were really encouraging about that in terms of the, uh, the school I went to did absolutely nothing with regards to there was no school play or anything. There was just nothing. And so there were no sort of really? opportunities. So when I was in secondary school, you were... If you are, you had to be in lower sixth or upper sixth of so the final two years of secondary school. You, that's when you'd be eligible to audition for the play. Yeah. And then, but once a decade or so, they do a staff pantomime. And so, when I was finally in my first year of being eligible, was a staff pantomime. So I wasn't allowed to be in it. And then, in my final year, they decided, oh, we're going to do a production of Oliver. So we want the youngest. Oh kids. right, yeah. So then they completely reversed it. So, but I would, do, so, but I would do sort of outside of school. Uh, Amdram sort of stuff for kids and stuff like that and 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 loved it and was and there were various sort of people involved in those sort of things who would who would sort of saying to my parents I think I think he should go into it did you audition for Harry Potter yeah. is that right I had I had an audition like oh well, you you've really bring up stuff that stings Simon um, oh sorry I, <laughs> no, no not at all <laughs> no it was um it was it basically at the time uh I had an audition lined up for, you know, to to then to read the role of Harry Potter, and uh, it just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And then uh, I went on a holiday with my family, and I remember us being in Spain, and my mum just going, "Oh, Glenn, no!" And, and the front cover of every newspaper was these pictures of Daniel Radcliffe. And before I even had an audition, they'd like, "God, nope, that's called off the search. We found him." Um, and uh, I, I was obviously absolutely gutted, but I think my my, my parents have been sort of quite sensible in terms of just sort of like pursue it if you sort of in your free time don't dedicate your life to it because you the chances of making anything of it professionally are just as small if you just did it if you went to the occasional audition whilst having a full-time job in something else or you know and so I think they were quite keen for me to sort of not to and that's absolutely fine and I don't I don't sort of regret that at at all and um and I think actually stand-up at first felt like uh decent enough not sort of replacement for it but an opportunity to perform where you can easily just perform most nights of a week and make money for it, as opposed to trying to, you know, mm, get yeah. cast in a in a six month long run of a play or anything like that, where you're then committing to a job for ages 
it's it, it, the nice thing about stand up is you sort of pick and choose your days and you go along to do a gig in some such town or a gig in some such town. Okay, we better come to your second game, Glenn. Yes. Um, can you tell us about this one and what's the emotion that this one's hitting for you? Okay, this one is pastoral coziness and it's <laughs> The Witcher 3. This is in my top three games of all time. It was my first PS4 game. I played it in 2015, so I think the year that it would have come out. And I would, I'd just been at the Edinburgh Festival and I came home elated. Usually I'd, 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 I'd done the Edinburgh Fringe twice previously but as part of a double act. And that's what I'd just done in 2015 as well. And at the time was still doing any temp job, any office temp job I could during the day. Uh, I was working as a journalist, as a freelance newsreader on the weekends and then was doing gigs six or seven nights a week anyway so I was just permanently sort of working and each time I left the Edinburgh Festival which is an exhausting month of performing I'd always go I'd basically get an early morning train and take that train straight to like Sky News and then do an afternoon evening shift and then just keep working forever and it was it was it was exhausting and so 2015 was the first time that I was leaving the Edinburgh Fringe going right comedy is now my full-time thing it's now my full-time job and I had a few opportunities on the horizon. I'd I'd just met my now fiance. And it was just every I was just feeling the high as a kite. I was so so sort of elated. And to to exacerbate that sort of even further, uh, whilst at the end of my fringe, I'd ordered a PS4 with a copy of The Witcher waiting for me when I sort of got home. And I I wasn't I, I initially wasn't keen on the idea of The Witcher. I didn't like the look of him. I didn't like the look of Geralt. I thought it looked like a nasty sort of game not, no, not, not that I'm sort of pearl clutching about that sort of thing I for instance love the original God of Wars but it looked like the original God of War he looked like the original Kratos he looked like a dick and I thought oh is is he gonna be a dick and I kind of I, I don't I didn't mind that in God of War but I kind of thought in a in a real nice sort of fantasy setting of nice sort of villages and rolling fields I don't really want to be like the protagonist from Atomic Heart. If like a kind villager's like, "How can I help you, sir?" and you're like, "Fuck off!" Um, I didn't, I, I didn't want it to be like that. And uh, and then I've been told by a few people this game is is absolutely incredible. And um, and so I uh, I got back from the Edinburgh Festival. Had this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at a shiny new PS4, and I had a load of camembert and cheese and loads of like Belgian wheat beer. I was basically like eating and drinking like Garrett, and I started playing it, and it was just singing the bath exactly. Tub. Yeah, yeah, a weird scorpion thing. It. It was everything I want. I mean, I, I've been so led in here by an aesthetic. Obviously, it's the aesthetic talking here, but I was just so that I just felt so just blissfully happy, and and it was everything I'd always wanted in sort of video games. I I, I love a tavern, anything like that. I love a sort of countryside setting and so final fantasy 9 was probably my first experience of that as a kid and i i just fell in love with final fantasy 9 i fell in love with kind of the scale of those sort of things opening that game up and finding it had four discs was just mind-blowing to me and i loved then things like dragon quest 8 or um deliverance uh, kingdom come deliverance any any games like that where, where yeah the cities are always cool but i just really cared more about those tiny little villages 
and stopping off for the night in an inn and playing cards and everything like that. And it was it, it's probably the longest game that I've completed more than once. I finished it three times. But the first time I just did really the first time was in 2015. I just I, I just played through many through the main missions and a fair few of the side missions, but accidentally missed a few. Yeah. And then I went back to it the following year and was like, right, every main mission, every side quest, and this time get a good ending because I kind of got the middle ending. And then in 2018, forced to myself, once I'd had the DLC as well, was like, okay, I can't stop thinking about this game. I can't stop listening to the soundtrack. It's yeah. on my mind a lot. Every time I play another game, all I'm thinking is it's not really The Witcher 3. So I was like, okay, in a, in a, whole, in a sort of like, oh, you got caught smoking, so your parents make you smoke the whole packet sort of way. I was like, I'm going to give myself an agonizing Witcher 3 experience in which I do every single question mark, every single into that map, and I'm going to force myself to get so bored of the game I'll never, ever play it. Did it work? Yeah, it, it, yeah. I just, I felt like I'm ready to say bye you to it. You feel like you're done now. But I still think okay. about it a lot. Um, and it's just, because <laughs> it, 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 just the, the writing was excellent. The characters were so, I fell in love with the characters. I really liked Geralt. I fell in love with Yennefer, then fell in love with Triss, and fell in love with Kira Metz, and just the, every, every single character was excellent. I don't mean in a romantic way, I wasn't making body pillows out of it, but like, it was just, I, I just, <laughs> I just loved and cared about everyone so much. Geralt kind of falls in love with all three of them, though, doesn't he? I think you can, he absolutely you does. can romance all of them, can't you? So Yeah, 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 and, uh, and I, I, I think, I think, I, I think I did each time. Um, but it was, it was, I, I think to have a game of that size, where none of the quests are rope or, really sort of repeated every side quest every contract you went on just spiraled off in a different direction and was so exciting and i know a lot is said about the bloody baron quest as being like this this huge sort of achievement in gaming but i just found that every mission was yeah it's very well written definitely it was just never boring it was just every, and and and, yeah. and and the the, the diversity of the the, the the regions as well the fact that white orchard's probably about the size of vice city and that's just a tutorial and it opens up into velen and novigrad novigrad is a huge huge city then to open into Skellige, where each of these islands had their own individual stories and clans, and, and you'd sort of solve the story of that island and move on to the next one. I mean, the fact that the DLC, the, the Tucson, the, the the enormous sort of south of France sort of region, was just incredible. And again, it really fulfilled that love I have of pastoral coziness of stopping at the Cockatrice Inn on that bridge in Tucson and just and having and Garrett having a red wine there was just like this is this is amazing <laughs> I feel so cozy it was just it was living vicariously yeah it was Geralt just I, 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 I must have come from reading red wall books as a kid or something like that but I just yeah it was uh, uh, yeah it, it's so it's so rare that a game just makes me feel that consistently elated one of the things I really liked about The Witcher was so often in open world games, the map just becomes this sea of little missions that you've got to do markers and the psychic toll of like opening your map and saying, oh, I've got 50 million things that I need to do before I can move on. And the Witcher just, they just don't do that. They have like two or three things quite often that are like, these are the th these are your like three options for what you can do next. And it feels much more manageable and less like Less like it's a game that's been built by various teams all around the world, mentioning no names Ubisoft, but you know, some, yeah, yeah. some of those games could just, you know, they feel like it's, it, they're filling, they're filling out the world for the sake of it, whereas this was much more crafted. Yeah, I don't, I, because a lot of those missions will be like, well, collect three Imperial Guard armors for me now. And you, it, there was none of that. There was no collect this amount of things. Right, yeah. Everything had a purpose and a reason and was relevant. And, and everyone felt relevant. Every position of every NPC, every village felt felt important and useful and it was a place where you could almost sort of people watch and you go into a bar and feel convincingly all these people are having a night out this is what's happening whereas in other, I've, i haven't really encountered that much in other in other open world games it, it, nothing really feels as lived in and as real as that 
barring maybe Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nothing else fills that organic and true, I think. Yeah, very true. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So you, uh, you mentioned there that you were for a while a journalist and working as a newsreader. Yeah, I read that you had to like before you could do that, you had to get a master's in in journalism, and to do that, you you wrote your dissertation on the economic impact of the Edinburgh Festival, so that you could, yeah, so you, so that you could go and perform there while you were doing your research. Um, it, that was exactly what happened. Yeah, I I was uh, I I knew that from the age of about five that I was like, okay, if if acting is a potentially frivolous full of pitfalls sort of career then i need something deadly serious grown-up serious that that uh, that, uh, that hopefully would allow me to sort of i don't know to sort of perform to some extent because i knew i wanted to sort of do that and i just decided from about the age of five i wanted to be a newsreader which is so strange for a child to want to do (laughs) so went went to uni knowing that's what i wanted to do and i didn't want to do journalism as a course i sort of preferred to do something that i was interested in and so did English Lit, knowing that I'd then go on to do a master's in, right. in journalism. Oh, you had it all planned out. That's amazing. Yeah, kind of. I just, I, I was very fortunate in that I, I sort of did know, I fully knew what I wanted to do. <laughs> but that did then immediately come crashing down the moment I started the master's because that's when I did my first couple of stand-up gigs and having done my whole life up to that point knowing this is what I do with my life, suddenly doing, a, you know, two stand-up gigs and being like, ah, oh, this is more fun <laughs> and... Uh, after the second gig got offered uh, you know to do a couple of gigs and the money was sort of all right and i was like oh my god is it this possible is this is it this doable <laughs> and um and so and i'd entered a stand-up comedy competition called so you think you're funny which i was fascinated by i've been running for decades and has been won by you know peter k and lee Mack and all the likes so so many huge acts and i was fascinated by on the wikipedia page even just the finalists every year the 10 finalists or so every single one of them would have you know Blue hyperlink, blue hyperlink. They've all got their own Wikipedia page. It's all a household name. It's all people have gone on to at the very least work full time in comedy. And so I was like, I really want to do this competition. Right. And the um, the final sort of involved me. Sort of, you know, it would involve me going to the Edinburgh Fringe, and I, you know, uh, I, I got through to the final. And so just it, it, yeah, in a very cheeky way, was like, oh, I'll do a dissertation about the economic impact of the Edinburgh Fringe, and just interview loads of comedians and stuff like that. And so that's what I did. And it was kind of uh, you know, half the questions I was asking comedians were about this dissertation topic and the other half were more sort of like so what advice would you give to any budding young stand-up 
I used to do that loads. I, I, when I, I mean, my first job as a newsreader and a roving reporter, you'd get all these sort of press releases through of just absurd, it's National Sausage Day. And, you know, this PR company would, would email this through and sort of go, and if you want to talk about sausages, we've got Al Murray available for interviews. So I would just say to my news editor, I'm just going to interview Al Murray. I think it'd be quite good content for the end, you know, the sort of and finally story. And uh, yeah, the second half of each interview, I'd just be asking them, how, what, how did you do it? What was your backstory? How did you get into this sort of thing? And because I was at a double act at the time, I'd get each of these celebs I interviewed to sort of, I'd very cheekily sort of ask them, can you do it, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage. And, you know, so I <laughs> remember getting like Michael Palin and Bill Bailey to do that and stuff like that. It was really, Amazing. I was terrified that I was going to sort of get found out. But yeah, so it was, it was, it was just an opportunity for me to sort of juggle both yeah. jobs sort of at the same time. And didn't you have, uh, this is like the, the journalist's worst nightmare, but when you were doing those interviews for your dissertation, did something go wrong with your recorder or something? Yes, I got back to, I, I got back to Sheffield where, where I was living and where I was doing uh, stand-up in the north of England and uh, listened back and every piece that I'd, I'd recorded was, had been corrupted. I did, oh, it was man. unusable. <laughs> and I'd just gone to the Edinburgh Fringe and spent all the little money I did have on that. And so the friend I was in a double act at the time, we were quite good at impressions and doing people's voices and stuff. And so um, we just sat down one day and just learned how to impersonate every single person I'd interviewed. And I just, you really shouldn't be admitting this. This is, I don't, can they take away a master's? Can they, uh, can you get a rescinded? This is really bad journalistic practice. It's, it's like, had it been in a professional setting, immensely illegal. Not only making up quotations, but, but also impersonating. But impersonating them. But we did, we did a decent job because we did intersperse it with, footage from their actual stand right and actually you couldn't tell we had to make sure the impressions were absolutely spot on but the one was because there were some fairly famous comedians involved yeah, who did you do uh i think um <laughs> i said you know what i actually the, the, uh, the, you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna put a hard limit on that's the amount i'm willing to reveal about that because it's just this is still a part of me even now that's like i my journalism career is so over anyway but there's still a part of me that's like could i lose my could I lose a qualification for it? I don't know. I, 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 there's still a part of me that's still pathetically nervous about it. And I, 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 was, I wasn't a good journalist because I was, I was scared all the time. I was so scared of screwing up because I would screw up enormously like that. And the stakes are so high in terms of like, if you broadcast the wrong bit of information or stuff, like sometimes, you know, it can carry a prison sentence. And it was just, it was just terrifying. It was so, so terrifying. Yeah. So let's not dwell too much on that. Let's, <laughs> let's. But I'm out of it now. I'm out of it now. I did it up until 2017. That was uh, that was kind of it. I was a journalist until I was 2017. I was juggling stand up, and then last time I did sort of a full news reading shift. I mean, I, w- I work on a, a radio breakfast show on Absolute Radio in in the mornings, and if the news reader is ever off sick, then I'll cover. I'll fill in oh, and, and read the news. Oh, but that's I, good. <laughs> uh, which is fine, but I still I, f- I still feel very scared. Yeah. To do it. This, this is why I was like. Yeah, I could if I'd lost a qualification, that could be an issue. <laughs> but um, but I, my hard out was uh, twenty seventeen was it was the last news reading full news reading shift I ever did was the day before <laughs> my first day, my first episode of Mot the Week. That was the that was the last time. Oh, I, that's a nice break. I was like, I should feel comfortable enough, and also I, I kind of I didn't enjoy. I was at the time I was at LBC, and I was freelance, so that I could juggle it with stand up gigs and. You were obviously then put on the graveyard shifts and working, you know, overnights and early mornings, or the shifts that no one else wants to do, which at the time was being the newsreader on Nigel Farage's show or Katie Hopkins. Right, right, and right. So I was, I was usually put as the newsreader on those shows, and I just didn't, 
want that association. Yeah, you felt like there was some splash damage coming off those characters. A little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was so bizarre being in the same, even just the same building right, right. as those people was was bizarre. You know, to meet my heroes. <laughs> It was despicable. I, 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 I really didn't know what to do. Yeah. Okay. Oh, when you fill in and do those extra bits now, do they pay you extra for that? Or do you just do that as part of yes, this? They're yes. Just... Yeah. Because like, you're doing two jobs. You're being a co-presenter and you're now having a Oh, that's good. This is, this is shippy. Okay. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's come to your third game then. Um, tell us about this one and, uh, and what it conjures up for you. So this game is called Darkwood. I don't think enough people know about this game. And I like the way I'm preaching to all my friends about all the Soulsborne games. This is the horror game that I tell everyone about. In terms of the, the feeling, the, 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 the theme of it is uh, subversive fear. That is my favorite kind. Uh, in horror games, I, I love, 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 love horror films. And even though so many are bad, and I'm always just looking for one that will just make me frightened of a specific normality in life you know i i, I like um in the, i i still think jaws is so effective because if you watch it the day before you're about to go swimming you will feel uncomfortable right, swimming. right i my favorite horror film is it follows because it made me nervous about just seeing another pedestrian on the same side of the road as me so i always enjoyed any invasion of a safe space in especially in games and ones that do it in a really creative way so my favorite instance is probably resident evil 2 is already an amazing zombie game, but when Mr. X, this tyrant who's just slowly walking after you throughout the whole game, the vast majority of the game, that that was scary enough. But you've got the main uh, forum, the atrium of the, the, of the of the police HQ, which is your safe space. Zombies can't come in there. That's where you save your game. And I remember running away from Mr. X, walking into the atrium, and then hearing the door open for these footsteps. And he was in there, and it was like that. that <laughs> That, 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 this wasn't the rule this wasn't the deal <laughs> yeah. and it was just so scary because it just it felt like something had broken in the game it felt like the girl in the ring coming out of the tv it felt like something's gone wrong here something's gone wrong with the game because the game has established all these rules and i have the most effectively i felt that since it's probably been immortality yeah, yeah. um which i did insist as a horror game and the first moment without spawning anything but the first moment the game subverts and you sort of get addressed through the screen was really scary i remember someone recommending it to me and just thinking this how how could this be scary how it's a top-down video game that's got the graphics of like the original gta's or like hotline miami right right it, not cartoony as such but definitely not in any way trying to sort of replicate be realistic or anything like that and the idea is it was made by a very small uh eastern european company and it's set in eastern europe and the idea is the area where you live has just been overgrown almost overnight with just huge trees it's just become a, a, a very difficult to penetrate forest 
you have no information, you don't really know who you are, and you've got a sort of safe house. And during the day, you go out scavenging for materials, and uh, you try and find just wood and gasoline. And in your safe house, you have this um, a generator that you pour your gasoline into, and that powers your lights. So you've got those on overnight, and you just barricade with wood and hammer and nails your doors, your windows, and then you'll feel the game starting to get darker and darker and darker, and you realize that was nighttime, and so you always make sure, back in my house by nighttime. And so the first time I was like, oh, first the first day of the game, I was like, this isn't that fun i met a couple of sort of wild dogs that were quite difficult to kill but i was like this isn't this is, I, I don't really get it and then night started to fall and i was like okay right barricade yourself up in your house <laughs> and it's absolutely terrifying you're told by the game don't go outside at night don't go outside uh night only lasts for about five minutes but the moment night falls the game just goes almost completely silent and you're just stood in the corner of a room with a shotgun pointed at the door and you've got all these bear traps on the floor in front of you, like Nathan Lane and Lee Evans in Malzahn, <laughs> just terrified that someone's going to come in. And what was incredible to me is that usually in a horror game, it stops being scary the first time you die. I love Alien Isolation until you get killed by the alien for the first time and you go, oh, actually, this is okay. But Dartwood throws so many terrifying things at you. And it's so varied in what it does because it is this, uh, the whole game is not explained to you. The, the, what, what us, happened to your town is not explained that it's just trying its best to scare you at all times and sometimes it's a case of oh you'll hear someone banging on your window and sometimes nothing comes of it. sometimes someone breaks in and it's a weird mutant that will come in and you have to sort of kill them and your your cone of light emanating from your torch is actually quite small so you're constantly sort of spinning around and it really gives you that sense of my back's against the wall i'm terrified at one time i went into my character's bedroom and there was just a man there overnight and he was just pleasantly talking to me and then he vanished and it was like this is <laughs> fucking horrible and it's and you're just waiting for morning to come and then what happens is when you wake up in the morning there's a trader each morning and if you've survived the night then he'll be more willing to trade with you and give you good items and so if you, so there really is a real impetus to not die so you really are trying to sort of stay alive and it's just handed to buy things like a watch so you actually know what time it is there's nothing worse than being caught out when it's dusk and you're like i know i'm more than five minutes away from home and right it's getting scary and it just really, the, the, the terror I'd feel like, I remember going out scavenging one day and coming back and realizing I'd left the generator on all day and I didn't know. And I was like, this generator's not going to make it all the way through the night. And just seeing my lights just slowly get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, maybe like two in the morning. And I was like, I know I've got a good few minutes of, and just sitting there in silence, just so, so terrified. It's unbelievable. It's a very challenging game, but it was just, I've, I've never known fear in a game like it. It was just, it was just unbelievable. And what the, basically the subversive fear that I felt was firstly subversion of looking at a game like that and thinking, there's no way this can be scary based on the visuals. <laughs> I'm not really one who cares that much about graphics, sure. but when it comes to horror, I kind of need it in order to be more immersed sure. in it. Mm. And the other subversive element of fear is throughout the day, your house is the safe space. It's the only place that enemies won't come in. And then at night, it is the most terrifying place wow. you've ever been. It's 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 un it's unbelievable. It's it's such an achievement. Wow! I think you've sold a few copies of Darkwood there. That sounds that sounds amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so you, uh, I mean, talking of horror, you um, you applied to be on the first civilian mission to Mars a few years ago. Is that right? Which is uh, fa famously a yes. journey from which no one will return. <laughs> why did why did you do that? Yeah, I did, and it was. Oh, it was after a breakup, ah. which makes it sound really <laughs> troubled, doesn't it? It makes it sound really, really troubled. I was, um, uh, basically, it was, I just thought, yeah, why not? I, it was more to see if I could be accepted. 
I think it was a case of if I had been, I'd probably have gone. <laughs> no, <laughs> obviously not. But to tell people anyway. the rest of your life, oh my God, I got accepted. And I got through a couple of like rounds and stuff like what that. What did they ask you? Do you know what? Nothing. It wasn't, it was, it was all quite, you sort of, I, I always can't really remember the process if it involved a sort of university-esque cover letter right. or anything like that. But it wasn't, it, aside from your personal and contact details, yeah, yeah. there wasn't a tell us why you'd be good. There was nothing like that. Right. It was very, very strange. And I ended up writing a, a stand-up show about it. Like I said earlier, that the, the, I'd always make sure that the one true bit of each stand-up show was the least plausible bit. The whole show was built on me applying for a first admission to Mars and what I'd do there and, and what I'd miss and stuff like that. And then at the end, the big reveal was like, that's the, that, that was real. That was the real bit. In the same way that like I did a show about news reading <laughs> a year later and, and it was all clearly falsified. I was talking about a radio station that didn't exist, telling all these silly anecdotes of stuff that clearly never happened. And then at the end was like, did told stories about Nigel Farage and Katie Hopkins. And then at the end played like proof to the audience. And it's like, that's the, that's the real bit. Oh, that's a good reveal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, that, that's sort of what prompted it. It was just, I, I, it, it was just on a whim. There was no, I, I, I definitely didn't think that decision through <laughs> at all. I mean, talking right now about my passion for video games, I, I'd hate, <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd hate it. There. I'd hate that. And I would have hated yeah, it. Yeah. 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 You, you're very good at um, communicating the appeal, the appeal of games. T- tell me how that's worked with your, your work with the BBC on uh, Press X to start. So how did that come about? It, weirdly in the middle of lockdown, which was quite nice. I'd, I'd, I, I was obviously very scared in lockdown to sort of, I, I was so excited before lockdown that at the time I was writing on a on an animated movie and I was meant to be going to LA a few months later to do stand up on Conan and was really like, oh my God, this is, I'm so excited about this. I and mean, then obviously everything just, you know, abruptly ended. Conan O'Brien uh, retired his show. Uh, the movie sort of didn't then just sort of dissipated or it's in sort of development hell. I don't know. <laughs> so my girlfriend and I, uh, fortunately in lockdown, got like a sort of sitcom script commission. So that was the thing that sort of was giving us purpose every day and that was giving us sort of routine. And I was able to do the, the Absolute Radio Breakfast show from home and that felt quite nice because. We were able to communicate with each other as a group of four presenters, but also we were, uh, it was so nice hearing the listeners get in touch and knowing that, well, actually this is all communal, we're all sort of in this together. And so what happened was I was, obviously had more time on my hands and so started to play loads, loads of video games, far more than I'd ever played before. And I was making an effort to play, just spending a bit more on just sort of really cheap indie video games I'd otherwise never really sort of uh, encountered. I think when, when I was growing up, I'd, you know, I'd maybe get like one video game for Christmas and then pocket money for me and my sister was probably like three pounds a month. So I could only really afford maybe like one video game a year. So if that was the case, I'd buy a big budget. This is the one everyone's talking about. And so I would never have played like a small indie title. And so suddenly having all that spare time, I was suddenly playing games like Observation or Kentucky Route Zero and stuff I'd otherwise never really encountered. And just realized about halfway through lockdown, I was like, because a lot of these games only take three or four hours. I was like, I think, I think I've completed about 80 games. Um, so I started to publicize it. I still thought, you know what, I'm going to start Twitch streaming and I'll just, uh, the challenge is to get to 100 by the end of the year. And um, uh, a friend of mine who, who works at the BBC sort of got in touch and was like, I didn't realize you are as into video games <laughs> as you are. And he was like, I think the BBC should have a video games podcast. And he was sort of working as the BBC sort of video game correspondent and was like, let, let's sort of put this together. And, and it became a sort of video game sort of review show, which was, which was, which was wonderful. It was the first time I'd, I'd ever uh, uh, not had to pay for video games, which is great, but it was, um, it was really fun to sort of do that. It was, it was, it made me daunted to be in your position of playing video games to a deadline, you know, being given Assassin's Creed Valhalla, maybe three days before release, and then having to give a really well thought out review afterwards. It was terrifying. <laughs> it feels like a real dick thing to, 
you know, to be able to say, yeah, it just came through a friend of a friend. And, you know, it, I felt very fortunate that that's sort of how it came about. But the podcast sort of took off and then it became a TV show, which was really fun. Yeah. And, it, you know, as ultimately, it is a video games review show, but it was just people talking about video games and as passionately as they could. And we were all interested in completely different kinds of video games, that, you know, and it was it was nice to back sort of help broaden my horizons a bit. I was so limited in terms of the genres I play when I was growing up. Mm, yeah, yeah. That actually it was nice to really sort of look outwardly and, and play things I would never have encountered. Okay, on that note, let's uh, let's come to your fourth game then, Glenn. Tell us uh, tell us about this one. And I'm I'm very sorry. I'm very, very sorry that I think uh, again at the time of recording this one will be the fourth <laughs> time it's come up and I'm sure it's going to come up many, many more times. There's another couple already. <laughs> oh my God. Well, we're just going to accept it's probably the greatest game of all time, haven't we? It is Disco Elysium. This, as has already been covered many times before, is you know it's an isometric CRPG in which you are this drunk alcoholic cop who wakes up in a in a in a hotel with absolutely no memory of who you are, and there's a dead body outside, and you realise, oh, I'm a cop who's meant to be investigating this dead body, and you and your colleague Kim Kutsuragi basically go around the town and you just solve it as a typical sort of murder mystery. But as an RPG, it's so fascinating that in terms of building up your character, it's so much more than just putting points into raw strength and stuff like that. Those are aspects of it. But you're you're essentially playing as a brain. Your, your skills are split into 24, basically, brain categories that do range from stuff that makes sense, like logic, but then they get more and more obscure to the point of, like, savoir-faire. <laughs> your sense of fashion, which the more points you put into it, the more your clothes start talking to you. And, you know, the way the game works is you've obviously got the uh, what you can see on screen of the characters, but you've got this sidebar down the side of a screen, which is just this relentless barrage, both of dialogue from the people you talk to, but also in between, it's a bit like Peep Show, the sitcom in a, in a sense of that you're constantly, the dialogue's constantly being interrupted by these 24 different categories of your brain communicating to you and, and talking to you about stuff. And it's, it, I, ju I just hadn't experienced anything like it. And it's, it's, it is a miracle it's a Beatles-esque miracle of gaming in that so many different things have to go right and so many amazing ideas and unique ideas have to come together that you are balancing these 24 different characters almost and it's fun that it is in the, in, 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 in the body of this shambling alcoholic cop and, you know, it, it, it doesn't play out like a normal RPG. I played it wrong the first time I played it. I, I <laughs> safe-scummed beyond belief right um i i try to max out certain skills and it's quite interesting that the game isn't meant for maxing out because you actually go more insane the more you do that i put all my points into encyclopedia and the game became this book of information <laughs> being thrown at me at all times so you've got to kind of balance that out and, and and i try and pass every skill check and actually that's not how the game's meant to be played at all it's a brilliant game about failure and what is so incredible about the game and the way it's written is everything feels canon. Everything you do feels like this was the only way the game was meant to be played. And actually in Disco Elysium, each failed skill check, because it's all done on dice rolls, each failed skill check actually then tells off into its own happy conclusion and it feels real and it feels organic and it feels like it makes sense in terms of your character. In terms of what emotion, what, it, what category this falls under is shame. What Disco Elysium does so well with regards to shame is um, 
your your shame has been sort of pre-ordained because you've woken up with no memory. And you can be as nice as you want to people, but your past is tailing you. What you did the previous night before you were playing the game is always going to catch up with you. And I was trying to talk to a, this, this cafe, this hotel where you sort of wake up. I was told that, oh, you know, there was a waitress here last night who was a witness to the murder. She'll be able to tell you something. And I ring her up and I'm trying to be really nice to her. And she's really off with me and I don't know why. And and then she's like, because last night you were joking about suicide and you were running around with your gun in your mouth, going around to people's... And, I felt, and it felt really shameful. Yeah. And I felt really, really bad that I was like, I, I can't do anything about that. I'm being... T- the whole game is you just getting told off by people. <laughs> your, your colleague, Kim, who's such a brilliantly written character... I'd feel so embarrassed every time it would say Kim raises an eyebrow, Kim mutters and writes down his notepad. I'd be like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to disappoint him. There's this wonderful Greek tragedy-esque element of unchangeability to it, that these wheels were all put in motion long before you right. started, started playing. It's so extraordinarily well-written. It's so poetic. It's just this unparalleled level of brilliance throughout that, that I, I just, I, that I just found uh, astonishing. Yeah, very nice. Um, so you you recently sold a script your first your first film I think did you write that with your fiance Yes yeah in fact it was the um, the sitcom script that we'd we'd had commissioned right. in, in oh, lockdown amazing. basically initially there was a big there was a big star sort of attached to it and that's why we were sort of writing the sitcom in the first place then because of scheduling stuff they couldn't do it and so then the, the sitcom just ended up sort of back in our hands and we were sort of a bit gutted about that but then we sort of got approached by a, a, a movie company recently and we sort of went oh we've got this thing that was a sitcom but we think could be a film. And uh, they they wanted it, and so we'd sort of write it together, and it felt it felt nice. It felt like oh right, lockdown wasn't a waste of time. We oh, did that's a, lovely. That was the King Lear. We did that right there. Right, that's fine. <laughs> you know, we can sort of. And so it's fun. It's fun to revisit something that you know that um that we did sort of a few years ago. Usually, I'd look back at any old joke or any stand up show I've written with such a, a sense of remorse and shame uh, that I I I've, j- jokes are something I do get quite quite self conscious about, and you sort of feel a bit sure, yeah, yeah. or create art in general. But you sort of look back and say, you go, oh god, was I. Yeah, yeah. Do you actually think that was impressive? It's the same in writing as well. So, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. And it fully makes sense for it to be. And, and and actually, it's quite nice to look back at this script and sort of go, oh, no, no, we still remain very sort of proud of this. And that that's quite nice. And it's a completely different avenue. For us. We, do, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We'd never written <laughs> a film before. But um, So what was it before? Like, a, you know, six half hour episodes or something that you're now turning into a 90 minute film? Yeah, with the, you know, and so, yeah, with the, with the and obviously when, when pitching sitcoms, it's all about you, you're trying to say to them, this will run and run. This will be yeah. Frasier. This will run for decades, you know. And uh, and so to suddenly be sort of like, right, this will run for 90 minutes and it'll be really fully wrapped up is, <laughs> is, is suddenly completely the opposite of what yeah, we were yeah. saying. There's no room, nothing else to this story. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's quite it's quite fun writing it with you. With, it's very fun writing it with a partner as well. You know, we had to sort of cross that bridge a few years ago when writing together of, right, we need to feel comfortable saying to each other that joke is bad. Don't, you know, and not and not to feel hurt by it or anything like that. that was the first sort of, and we got over, we had to make sure we got over that immediately, and that was really easy to get over. And we write for each other quite a lot, and she's she's written for me um, in for sort of shows I've done, and, and I, I I sort of uh, write for her when she's so cool. writing on stuff as well. So that's that's, that's quite a nice sort of dynamic, and it's quite nice that um, yeah. But it, I think it's fortunate that she's purely on the writing side of thing, and I'm mostly on the performing side of things because it means there's never any envy over. I think if we were both, say, stand Yeah, what opportunities you're getting or whatever. Yeah, and if, you know, and then I think back, 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 of course, of course there'd be envy there. But actually, at the moment, you know, with this, it's just purely sort of supportive, which is, um, which yeah. is nice. Oh, lovely. 
Right, Glenn, we better we better come to your uh, your fifth your fifth game here. So um, this one came out. Did this one come out during lockdown? I can't remember. Anyone? Tell us. Uh, this yeah. was yeah, yeah. It did. <laughs> it was it was meant to come out early in lockdown and ended up coming out in June or July of 2020. Uh, this comes under the topic and theme of woodlands and small towns of America. <laughs> it's the Last of Us Part Two. <laughs> Honestly, it's up there with pastoral coziness. I love tall pines, uh, misty, you know, wood panel buildings. Even though The Last of Us is um, is a bleak post-apocalyptic version of that, it's that it's such an in-depth realization of of, of, of of a particular environment. And I found it endlessly fascinating to just, especially in the second game. It is my favorite game of mm-hmm. all time, and I, I felt confident saying it the moment I completed it. Even though I was like, give me. You know, no recency buys. This is difficult. But looking back, I'm, uh, it's so good. I never want to play it again because I'm like, that was that was a perfect moment for me. That was a perfect game playing experience. The, the sheer effort that, that has gone into the game and the, and the care and just the uh, amount of variations you have when just even opening a door and stuff like that was just incredible. I, I loved The Last of Us Part 1 and I felt empty every time I replayed it when there was the ending and it just cuts off and mm, I just right. think, I can't, that can't be the end of it. I know it is and I know that's so powerful and it's so effective and I regret the first time I played Last of Us because I played it very stupidly. I, d- I wasn't expecting it to be as in- intelligent and deep as it was and so just played it as a mindless zombie game because that's what I thought it what I thought it was and um, in, I think in the same way the first time as a kid I saw like Fight Club and Gladiator I was expecting it to be like Street Fighter and like it's all about the next fight that's coming up you know and so that's kind of how I played The Last of Us I just didn't really assess the development of Joel and Ellie's relationship throughout, I was just enjoying the road trip, I guess. And then at the end, when Joel's storming the hospital and killing everyone, I was like, yeah, fucking kill them. They're trying to kill Ellie. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't question his actions at all. It was so thick of me. So thick. Uh, but it wasn't until I replayed it, I was like, my God, this is incredible. And um, and I loved Left Behind, the DLC. But even then, because it was a prequel, I was like, no, I just want to know what happens next. I need to know what happens next. And for a game that had such a powerful ending, to then do something so powerful and interesting in the second game, to sort of do that twice over was was, was incredible in a different direction. The, that sort of Rashomon-esque, let's see the game from an entirely different perspective halfway through. At first disappointed me, because it's the first half ends on such a cliffhanger. But suddenly when the realisation came in of, I'm going to play as a second person all the way up until this point again, I was like, I can't do another 15 hours of this before I find out what happens to Ellie. And I was gutted about that, but then I just... It then made me so interested in that, oh, it is incredible that I enjoyed having these debates with people of, are you Team Ellie, are you Team Abby? For everyone I knew who hadn't played the first, they were all Team Abby, and I was always going to be Team Ellie, and I just, I loved it. I think it's so incredibly well written, I, 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 and I feel as well that a lot of the criticism that it received, all the criticism to me, it always comes down to the conclusion of, yes, because it's good. <laughs> a lot of the criticism of it felt like kind of 
at school, if you were well behaved and you did something wrong, you'd be told off more than the naughty kid would be because the teacher would be like, "I expect, I expected that this is days have gone. I didn't, expect, <laughs> I didn't expect this of the last of us, you know." Um, so it, no, that's kind of what it felt like. Because um, I, 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 I think, because I, I mean, most of criticism comes from comes from the violence, mm. but it's like, well, that, but, 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 but I, I do think there is a point to that because we are we are we are viewing the game from two people's perspectives, including the victim of the protagonist. So. Yeah, we. I think it is assessing violence to some extent. It's, it, it's exploring how flawed these protagonists are. The game is incredibly violent, but I didn't really see that the first time. I think I was just quietly shooting people in the head or strangling them, and actually didn't. It didn't really feel that violent. And I think some of the violence I've seen since of people using, you know, sort of exploding arrows and you blow someone in half and they're still screaming is obviously horrifying. But like, it doesn't. Game doesn't make you do. That. <laughs> um, and so I feel like. You're, you're player blaming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're sort of like, I, you know, I killed this guy, and then next to him, I, 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 I'd fired bullet holes into the ground into the shape of Hitler. Do you think that's acceptable? And it's all, the game didn't tell you to. It's just, it was, yeah, it, it, I loved the setting. I loved, I, I, I loved the story. And it was, it was a game I'd been waiting for, for, for years because I just wanted to see what happened next. And it was, <laughs> it was everything I could have wanted. And it's, uh, Naughty Dog are just masters at making big budget cinematic games uncharted's excellent and and last of us as well and it's just it's good to see a game of such a high budget uh just just you know care about the the artistic integrity of it and care about the actual arty creative side of it and the level of detail is just is just unparalleled and also lovely pine trees lovely houses really (laughs) into it (laughs) wonderful I keep thinking about, I could probably like shoot bullets into the ground in the shape of a swastika. I don't know if I could do it in the shape of Hitler. Oh, Lord knows I've tried, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, we better, we better look back. So this is, Glenn, you're going to have to help me out with uh, maybe the emotions that, uh, or the yes, feelings that each of these games conjures, but we've got um so Dark Souls 2, which I think evokes a sense of home, home and yeah. sanctuary and the joy of finding a shortcut. We've got the The Witcher 3, which is your love of the rural France. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. countryside coziness. Okay. Uh, Darkwood, which is the horror of uh, a safe space being in- invaded. A subversive fear. Um, a disco Elysium. Shame. What was it for this one? Shame, shame, that's it, of course. How could I forget? <laughs> uh, and then lastly, The Last of Us Part 2, which is all about the homeliness of rural... The woodlands and small towns of America, yeah. 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 Wonderful. Okay, what a console. So, um, yeah, Glenn, what are, what are we going to name this thing? Uh, God 2. <laughs> Bigger than God. I was, I, I, was, I was initially trying to think of an acronym, and actually the acronym I said on was Glenn's original device, and it does make sense that, okay, let's let's rival some de- deities. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was that, that, that's what it is. I, it, I, I, I don't think it's a very varied console, um, and I think some of the games possibly, it's, it's all very recent. It's all very, they're all very recent games, but they are, they're, they're just incredibly powerful ones. Yeah, it's good, yeah. Great. Okay, so the God Two, we'll put that out. God the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, okay, lastly, so I'm going to get you to. Um, I normally ask a question here, but I'm actually going to get you to pay back that thing that you uh, made all those comedians do. Could you do introducing to the stage my perfect console for me? <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. So wait, what do you? So what do you want me to say? So what, whatever you would get the comedians to say when you would do this. Okay. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out tonight. Welcome to the stage, my perfect console. It's God Two. <laughs> the crowd goes wild. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, that's been great. Thank you so much, Glenn. I've loved hearing your choices and your really thoughtful perspective on each of these games. It's been absolutely great. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Simon. Thank you so much to my guest there, Glenn Moore. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. What a lot of fun it was. And um, uh, really appreciated Glenn's uh, deep thinking and explanation behind each of his game choices. Um, he had, uh, he'd really figured out what, what it was behind each one of these games that uh, was appealing to him and um, uh, a really fun way of articulating that, I think, uh, with, the, with the different themes. Great choices as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic to see Glenn's career blazing off and uh, all the success that uh, he's enjoying at the moment. And um, yeah, it was just, I've not spoken to him before. I've not met Glenn before, but um, it's funny sometimes in these situations, you interview someone and uh, and you're like, oh, it feels like you're chatting to a buddy. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I certainly I certainly felt that during that conversation. So thank you to Glenn for, for agreeing to come on and for being so open and, and generous uh, with, his, with his time and with his thoughts as well. You can follow Glenn on uh, Twitter. You'll you'll be able to find him easily. Uh, you can watch clips of his stand-up, his appearances on uh, Mock the Week and all the other shows that we talked about um, on uh, YouTube and elsewhere. He also posts clips uh, regularly to to Twitter. So go and uh, go and follow him and uh, follow his work. You can also listen to the radio show that he presents on Absolute Radio as well. So lots of ways to connect with glenn more hashtag content and of course uh hopefully we'll be we'll be seeing this film of his at some point down the line although these things can take a very very long time to come to fruition but uh fingers crossed that uh, that it makes it all the way onto some sort of uh, cinema screen or tv screen or, or streaming service so uh whatever happens i am certain that we're going to be seeing lots more from glenn in the future uh, I would just like to say a huge thank you to those of you who've signed up to become Patreon supporters. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you just head to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and there for just $5 a month you can become a myperfectconsole subscriber. You get all sorts of great benefits from that. So each month I do a reveal of the four guests that are going to be coming up uh, in the weeks to come. You will also have the chance to ask some of those guests uh, questions and some bonus episodes in which I put uh, some of those questions to the guests. You also get your episodes early, ad-free, and later on this year you'll have the chance to vote uh, in the knockout competition to discover which is the guest's best My Perfect Console of the Year. So all sorts of things to get involved with there. Please do come along. If you if you use the Patreon app as well, Patreon very kindly has given us access to a beta feature. We've got something called a lounge on there, which means that you can communicate to me and to other supporters and, you know, get chatting in there. It's it's a nice place. You can do that. And yeah, there's like I say, there's not many patrons around that have that feature yet they're just sort of trying it with us for some reason but uh, so yeah come and give that a go uh it's essentially like discord but you don't have to leave the patreon universe to access it 
okay, in other news, very excited to announce that we'll be doing our first My Perfect Console live, uh, a live recording in September in London. We would love to see you there. This is going to be as part of the WASD XIGN Games event. Uh, that is happening at the Truman Brewery in London from the 14th of September. So this is a games event. There's going to be hundreds of games unreleased and uh, that you can go and play and watch and see and you can meet other uh, game fans and go to a careers fair. There's all sorts of stuff going on. If you head to the website, the WASD website, then you can read up on what's going on in, in at that event One of the things that's going on is at 7pm on Thursday, the 14th of September, we'll be doing the live record of the podcast. Tickets cost just £5. They do require a day pass to WASDXIGN. But if you have that day pass, it's £5 to come along to the record. And um, yeah, the guests, the guests slash guests are going to be announced in coming weeks. But for now, if you head to www.wasdlive.com forward slash tickets, Uh, You can pick up your tickets and come along to My Perfect Console Live. How exciting. Please do come. It would be great to see you. I know that we're going to have a really good time. You can also write to me at uh, on uh, myperfectconsole at gmail.com with any thoughts, suggestions, any guest suggestions. Uh, loads of you do that. It's really, really helpful. I try to respond to all of you. Uh, apologies if I've neglected to do so. Uh, but but please know that every everything gets read and it's all going into uh, my big spreadsheet of people to talk to and approach. Um, so please continue to do that. Uh, and if you do have a spare moment, then just hop on Apple Podcasts and leave a, a rating and a review. And if you haven't subscribed yet, why not? Yeah, click the subscribe button. All that all that junk that we have to say as part of uh, our life doing this sort of thing. I will be back again next week. We've got a great run of guests coming up. We've got a great run of guests that we've had in the past as well. So if you haven't, uh, then dip into the back catalogue and catch up on some of those uh, episodes as we build out the My Perfect Console universe, the uh, MPCU, as someone on Twitter described it as. There's lots of great discussions and interviews for you to go back and enjoy as well. So please do that. Uh, Otherwise... I will be back again next week with one new guest, their five game choices and one more perfect console. Until then, goodbye. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.